over a year since the world went into lockdown. More than a year since we've had to leave school, work, friends, and entire lifestyle behind. If you look through articles that have been published during the COVID-19 crisis, you'll find headlines that talk about managing isolation during the pandemic, living with loneliness as the pandemic rages on, and loneliness and epidemic levels in America. The idea of a spreading sense of loneliness isn't really new though. Public health experts have been talking about this as a widespread phenomenon in America for years now. But why was this the case pre-COVID? And what does a sustained feeling of loneliness do to your health? Welcome once again to a new episode of the Brainy Bunch podcast. My name is Jonavi, and I'll be your host today. Today's subject is about social isolation and loneliness, and what neuroscience can tell us about their causes and effects on the human brain. First though, let's take a step back and look at some definitions. Loneliness and feeling alone are terms that get thrown around often in casual conversation, all with different meanings, but neuroscientists and public health experts define it in a much more precise manner. Researchers Dr. John Cassiopo and Dr. Louise Hockley from the University of Chicago termed it in 2010 as a distressing feeling that accompanies the perception that one's social needs are not being met by the quantity or especially the quality of one's social relationships. It's important to note that loneliness doesn't have any direct connection to the amount of people that surround you. It's totally possible to feel alone even when surrounded by tons of friends and family, and it's possible to feel socially connected or content when only around one or two people. The feeling stems from how you perceive social isolation, not from any measure of objective social isolation. Different statistics abound when it comes to measuring this feeling among people in the United States. This psychology research uses a measure called the UCLA Loneliness Scale where participants are asked to answer questions like, how often do you feel outgoing and friendly? How often do you feel alone? Or score themselves on statements like, I feel isolated. There are people I can talk to, and I feel part of a group of friends. Recent surveys have ranged from saying that more than 61% of all Americans feel lonely, a rise of about 13% since the 2018 surveys, and other findings that talk about how 36% of all Americans feel serious loneliness, a feeling of being lonely frequently or almost all the time. So where exactly is this coming from? Why do we feel so bereft when we don't have people to turn to? It turns out that social connection functions much like our other basic needs, similar to thirst and hunger, It isn't just something that's an added bonus of life, it's something that our brains are wired to seek. And our brains actually have mechanisms that regulate this craving for social connection. One theory tells us that humans as a species survived in packs, much like other organisms, because it afforded more protection. And the perceived loss of that through isolation evolved as a sort of pain. The feeling of loneliness was supposed to act as a signal reminding us to take action, to minimize any threats, and to find that same sense of protection once again. 
One research study looked into how perceived social isolation affected the activation of the ventral striatum, which is a part of the brain that is critical in reward processing and learning. It's filled with dopaminergic neurons, which, as the name suggests, releases dopamine, a signaling molecule or neurotransmitter that binds to different receptors and plays an important role in motivation, reinforcement, and reward. Researchers asked people to give up their electronic devices and to spend 10 hours in a room by themselves. They could use puzzle books and other writing materials, but they weren't allowed anything that could simulate social contact, like fictional stories. Later, scanning their brains while showing them pictures of social cues made the ventral striatum light up with activity in a parallel fashion to just how hungry people would react when shown pictures of food. In a different study by scientists at UChicago and Dartmouth, researchers investigated whether individual differences in perceived social isolation predicted regional brain activation to social stimuli. They designed an experiment where participants were shown a series of pictures that were divided into categories of emotional and social content. For example, a picture of a roach and an explosion were chosen for the label of unpleasant non-social pictures, a man slapping a woman as an unpleasant social picture, money and a rocket liftoff as pleasant non-social pictures, and a roller coaster and a man and a dog running as pleasant social pictures. Each photo was shown for about six seconds and the study's participants had to make a judgment as to whether they felt the photo was negative, neutral, or positive. They also completed the UCLA loneliness scale that we mentioned before, and combining this data, along with that generated by fMRI scans, revealed that loneliness was negatively related to neural activation in the ventral striatum when viewing pleasant social pictures, and positively related for viewing pleasant non-social pictures. Basically, this means that people who felt more socially isolated had greater activation in that brain region when they saw pleasant non-social pictures in comparison to social ones. A different study found that individuals who felt socially isolated viewed pleasant interpersonal interactions as a lot less pleasant than people who feel socially connected. Other research has observed that lonely humans show more rapid detection of negative social information. These findings are suggesting that there could be pre-existing differences in dopaminergic response to social stimuli, and that's another reason why some people are therefore predisposed to feeling more lonely than others, even given the same set of circumstances. One person's brain is getting less activation of dopamine and is detecting more negative cues than someone else in the exact same environment. Research from VU Amsterdam targeted the idea that heritability could play a role in these differences between individuals, with results showing that heritability of loneliness averaged across age is 45%. They also note, however, that there is a drop in genetic influences and a rise in shared environmental influences around the age of 12, theorizing that puberty could influence the expression of genetic factors 
and that social environments and sensitivities begin to drastically change around this time. Taken together, it's clear that high levels of loneliness isn't a sensation that comes directly from one's own choices or behavior. The brain and the body have a large underlying role in it. We often think of loneliness as being purely an issue of mental health, but unfortunately, the effects of perceived social isolation go well beyond that. Any quick Google search will let you know that the feeling of loneliness is linked to a plethora of negative effects on physical health, including higher rates of anxiety, depression, higher blood pressure and cardiovascular risk, an increased risk of getting Alzheimer's, and increased morbidity and mortality. You may have heard the analogy at some point that high levels of loneliness can actually create health risks that are equal to or even greater than smoking 15 cigarettes daily. If you tell someone that you or someone you know is feeling lonely, chances are that you'll be on the receiving end of a lot of advice. You'll be told to move out of your comfort zone, to actively seek new friendships or relationships, to go try a new activity, or join a group of people that share the same hobby as you, to volunteer, to attend a religious service, to disengage from social media, the list goes on and on and on. But are these the only available solutions? Have you ever met someone who seemed to often be perfectly content when they were alone? Perhaps even when they weren't surrounded by other stimuli like TV or social media or books? We've talked this entire time about what loneliness is, where it possibly stems from, and what kinds of negative effects it has on mental and physical health. Could it be that there is anything positive? We have to take a step back and examine those definitions again. Loneliness, as we said before, is about perceived social isolation. It's not something that's chosen by an individual because that would go against the idea that our brains are wired for social connection, that we need interaction to survive and to thrive. But simply choosing to be alone rather than to feel alone is very different. It comes down to a difference in attitude. Some people are immensely content with solitude, and feeling comfortable alone goes a long way in helping navigate times when you're forced to be alone, like during the pandemic. It turns out that the experience of being alone alters brain regions that are associated with perceptual, attentional, and effective processing of social information. In essence, this alteration could actually create a greater focus on the self and self-reflective thoughts stimulating neurocognitive processes like reminiscing, future thinking, or stimulating desired social exchanges. Some people may call this imaginative, and maybe it's one reason why many famous authors and artists work well in prolonged periods of solitude. Choosing social withdrawal of your own free will can actually be really beneficial. When withdrawal is a choice, Most people don't perceive themselves as being isolated. It's a trait psychologists refer to as unsociability. And although we throw that term around in daily life as something inherently negative, it doesn't actually refer to something bad. 
Unsociability is different from shyness, where people might withdraw out of fear or anxiety in social situations. It's also different from social avoidance, where people simply dislike social interaction. This is more of a preference for solitude, not an aversion to human connection, although some overlap is definitely possible. In the past, unsociability has never been linked to negative outcomes. For the first time, a study from the University of Buffalo actually found associations between unsociability and positive outcomes in creativity. So it's no longer just a behavior that's neutral, all right to have, all right to be, but one that generates good outcomes. Being alone reduces the need to conform, to impress, and to live up to the expectations or to a pattern of behavior that other people deem acceptable. It's a clear and open pathway to being more creative. I think these findings raise a lot of important questions about the way we view development in children and young adults, how we place so much importance on the culture of interacting with people in order to develop social skills. It's true that such skills are essential for life, but we might be missing out on other skills, like greater reflection and comfort in being alone, by focusing solely on interaction as the most beneficial path forward. A recent report showed that about 79% of Generation Z, or those aged from 18 to 22, reported feeling lonely in 2019. Millennials, or people aged 23 to 38, weren't much better, where the percentage of 71%. The loneliness epidemic that public health experts are talking about may have risen through the increased use of social media and technology, the increase of stress culture, or the way that cultural values have changed, but nothing is definite or proven. What seems clear is that loneliness is an increasing problem, and there doesn't seem to be proven solutions of how to cope with it either. Lessening the stigma of spending time alone by choice, encouraging people to spend time reflecting and away from social stimuli might actually be a better way of combating the feeling of loneliness. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out the other episodes of The Brainy Bunch to learn more about neuroscience research and what it can help us understand about other aspects of our lives. Up next, Julia and Shelby will be discussing music and language acquisition during childhood and their potential cognitive or developmental benefits. Thank you.